0: Hey everyone, this is EJ Lawless from HR Tech GTM. This is a robot-oriented episode. I speak with Brad Bogolia from Simbi Robotics. And we talk about Simbi Robotics and this problem they're solving within the retail space, how they decided, how Simbi decided, what area of robotics to utilize to solve a problem in retail and the additional business model that comes from what they're doing. This is a great look at the evolution of the robotics space. Hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, everyone. This is EJ Wallace from HR Tech Go-To-Market, the most popular podcast on how HR tech companies go to market. We have a special edition today. Today, I'm here with Brad Bogolia from Symbi Robotics, and we're going to talk about robotics and how they're used in the workforce. Brad, thanks for joining us. I appreciate you
1: coming on the show. Yeah, absolutely. EJ, thank you so much for having me.
0: Brad, I'd love to hear from your version. Like, What is Symbi Robotics? What is Tally? What are you working on? What are you doing?
1: Yeah, absolutely. At Simbi, we're really focused on digitizing the world of physical retail. So, we build a fully autonomous mobile robot platform that essentially takes automated inventory in physical retail stores and warehouses. And specifically, we're helping these stakeholders ensure, you know, product is stocked, it's in the right place, it has the right price. And if we think about it from a big picture perspective, You know, all of us depend on the retail industry and your neighborhood grocery stores for everyday essentials like healthcare and beauty products, food. These stores have not changed a lot really since the cash register of the barcode. So we're really about bringing greater visibility into the products, into these environments. Great, I have a two part question.
0: So first part is gonna be why robotics? The second part is gonna be why retail? But starting with just the robotics, How and why did you decide upon a robotic solution for this problem?
1: If you look at a lot of our retail stores kind of across the U.S., they're really large footprints. You know, your average grocery store is 20,000 to 100,000 square feet. You know, many of your large mass market or hypermarket stores like the Target's, Walmarts of the world can be upwards of 200 plus thousand square feet. The reality is the cost of fixed infrastructure, so either putting sensors on every shelf or on every product or cameras in every aisle is too cost prohibitive in these really large-scale environments. So what you end up with is sort of a mobile scanning platform.
0: Interesting. Okay. So you were sort of thinking about these large retail stores that probably primarily exist in the US. I'm sure they exist in Europe to some extent, primarily in the suburbs. I think Costco's Target, Walmart's as you said. And the problem of how do stores identify what is in stock and what is not, you're like the fixed infrastructure cost of putting in place sensors is too high for that to be the right option. Is that sort of a correct summarization?
1: That's correct. And the way the industry operates today is they attempt to do this with labor. However, these stores sell tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of products. And those products are always undergoing dynamic change on these shelves. So it becomes an incredibly complex and time consuming task, you know, really for store teams to do, especially when they have many other, you know, tasks and responsibilities to take care of. So we really automate in ensuring that, you know, product is properly stocked and in the right place.
0: In as you were thinking about this problem space, what made robots seem like the right option? And we didn't talk about, I think probably your specific robot platform right now is tally 3.0 as well. Is that correct? Yeah. That's but, correct. why why that approach? So understand labor, you know, maybe it doesn't scale. I think maybe there's other things we can talk about with the concept that you talked about, jobs to be jobs versus tasks. And then there's also sort of the fixed infrastructure. But how are you thinking, okay, I think robots is the right time to do this. That would probably not occur to me is, is the first thing, I'll be honest. Like i would think like maybe a video camera or something like that. And so I'm just curious to get a little bit more insight there.
1: Yeah, abs- absolutely. You know, on the robotics front, I think the whole industry has kind of benefited from these waves of lower cost mobile compute advances in sort of battery technology. So you can actually build robotics solutions sort of very cost effectively today, we're starting to see that same platformization that we've seen in other industries. So that is sort of one component. The other piece is, it's, it's really the best way to sort of solve the problem. And Hmm. if you're not using people, so the way people do this today is they sort of go up and down the aisles. They literally look and scan at every product and they input whether that product is on shelf or not. And that's incredibly time-consuming process. If you gave that person a phone or sort of a video camera, you could incrementally sort of expedite it. But that person is going to be also distracted with all of their other tasks, right? So what we've enabled here is really an opportunity to allow a fully autonomous solution uh, to fully take this task within the retail environment and allow store teams to really focus on, you know, fixing problems versus versus searching for them.
0: Yeah, and I imagine, I don't know if Zebra Technologies does this, if this is the space where they'd use some type of automation, but I imagine you're right, like a human going there, someone's going to come up and ask them a question. That person's going to have to stop, go help and come back. I would have to imagine that Tally does not get asked Many questions about where something is, although maybe Tally actually has that information, would be a great person or a great, great thing to ask in store. Is there any speech component to Tally right now?
1: So, Tally has very basic lights and sounds. I would say it's more closely represents what you see on sort of electric cars, right? A Tesla or a Volts or whichever car would be, you know, sort of rather silent with electric motors. So, we have, I would say, more R2 D2 esque sort of beeps and okay. beeps. They kind of let people know its presence in the aisle without being, you know, too intrusive. Mm-hmm. In addition, you know, light lights are used on the robot, not in, in sort of a bright way. They're, they're sort of like light pipes, much like, you know, you have your running lights on your car kind of thing. So you can sort of visually see this distinctly, you know, down, down the aisle as well. Okay, got it. So Tally has a way of
0: alerting people i mean obviously you can see tally and we'll certainly show a video clip of it but you know people can see it and then there's some amount of light interface but it's not something that is going to receive audio input from anyone it's pre-programmed or not pre programmed but it's programmed to sort of scan and go about its tasks i'm curious how did you go about selling this into larger stores i mean i have to imagine at least initially because you've been working in this a few years. There had been some hesitancy. I think there was this narrative that robots are going to take people's jobs. I think that's shifting to robots are going to complement people's jobs. And I'm just what was that like and how has it shifted and how did you go about that in the early days?
1: Yes, we went through a messaging well, I, positioning. Sorry. Yeah, I, I would say we went through maybe two interesting junctures in the early days. There was the first of which... At the end of the day, most retailers on the planet are really merchants, right? They're really about what they sell, what their stores look like. That's really how they differentiate themselves. In the modern world of retail, IT is now becoming this area that sort of crosses the entire spectrum of both sort of the retailer's experience and customer experience. So we're seeing retailers open their eyes to more technology. When we first started, you know, five or six years back talking to retailers there was this real question of like, is this a science experiment? Mm-hmm. And what we very quickly proved to retailers is actually it's not. And this technology is actually ready for prime time and can scale pretty rapidly. So I would say that was really the, the first piece. The second, and both of these were hurdles that were very we were able to very quickly overcome, is we all know what most people know about robotics is kind of what they see in the movies right? Or you have a very simple robotic vacuum cleaner at home. But as a company, we've had this very fortunate opportunity to actually bring robotics to environments that people frequent every week, which is like your neighborhood grocery store, or your drug store, or your hardware store. And through that experience, we garnered a lot of interesting insights. So very quickly, once people understood what the robot was doing, they actually recognized it was more of a power tool right mm-hmm. much like a power tool allows a carpenter to work faster this tool actually works in conjunction with the store teams to help get product back on the shelf faster ensure the prices are right know where everything is in the store it's not actually taking anyone's job it's actually allowing the store to operate better and as people began to sort of understand that that's really the solution and how it works that's when when we you know, really started to receive a lot of deep interest.
0: Interesting. And when you're going out and you're talking to companies, you know, a lot of the companies that I talk to on this podcast are more going out to HR professionals. You go into HR and you're like, hey, this is going to help people do their job better. It's Power Tool. Are you going to operations? and you're Like, hey, you're going to help the store run better. Or is it sort of both just depending?
1: Yeah. So When we look at our traditional sales process today, it's traditionally operations leadership coupled with technology or data leadership in the business Mm. are the project sponsors. In many accounts, it's both. In in some accounts, it's one or the other. But that's really the the partnership that has to come to fruition, right? The head of operations is going to use this technology to fundamentally change the way they manage their stores and their store teams. But to be able to execute on that, they need, you know, some lightweight support and lift from the IT technology teams to, you know, assist with the rollout of the solution.
0: Hmm.
1: Interesting. And
0: what type of onboarding does this look like? Do you have a meet and greet between the store personnel and tally when sort of tally is going to be first? introduce. I imagine it's like a new team member in some ways. You probably have to have an orientation, get to know Tally. Mm -hmm. Is that right?
1: Absolutely. And this is a piece we very much emphasize with our client base. And, you know, most retailers are really good at communicating both to their customers and store teams. So it's easy for us to slot in within their kind of existing communication frameworks. But in the early launch, let's say we're you know, beginning to trial this technology with a large retailer, typically we go into sort of 10 to 20 stores to sort of start out. There would be very much high-touch communication to that initial sort of store launch group where representatives both from Simbi as, as well as senior leadership for the retailer would come out, meet with the store teams, allow them to see the technology in action, see how it works, answer any questions they have, you know, put up FAQs, and we've seen that that sort of works incredibly well. In addition, you know, the majority of our retail partners have also announced the embrace of this technology publicly. And the great benefit of that is, as customers are sort of coming into the store, or partners, mm. let's say, you know, PepsiCo or Frito Lay, whoever's driven mm. delivering product directly to the store, coming in. They also know what this is is in the store environment before they actually come in. So we often partner with. We've done a lot of work, for example, with regional grocery chains that are quite large, spanning a number of states. We'll often partner up with you know the local newspapers within all the regions, and you know do a press announcement. They'll also most retailers have customers' email addresses and sort of a loyalty application. Mm. Uh, so we'll disseminate this type of information to them as well, but. The communication piece is 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 really critical. I feel like that's something that would not
0: be intuitive, even as I think about it as a marketer. Everything you're saying makes sense. You want the customers to be prepared. You want the vendors to be prepared. So that sort of large-scale push makes a lot of sense. I imagine that is something since you've been doing this for a few years, you just get better and smarter and better at it. And that probably also means that you have a better rollout. I don't know if there are a lot of competitive options, but I that just seems like it would be a differentiator, like the positive response to Simbi and Tally going to be something that retailers will look at and be like, okay, I trust that these people will do it well.
1: Absolutely. And I, I think it's not only sort of the physical communication, but there's a component of like the product itself and the user experience, right? Nobody wants to see a big, scary, very industrial sort of robot yeah. in these stores. So we've spent a lot of time... On the industrial design of the product, you know, much more so that you would see with more consumer like products, even though we, we operate more of sort of an enterprise or industrial solution. So those pieces are really important as well. How it behaves in the aisle. If it comes into an aisle that's congested, it skips it. Um, If it sees a uh, a shopper is picking a product off the shelf 10 feet down an aisle, it will sort of loiter for a while to see what that customer does. And if the customer moves, Mm -hmm. it will keep scanning. If not, it will sort of go around. So I think, though, the user experience component of both industrial design as well as what we call in the world of robotics sort of robot behaviors is, Mm -hmm. you know, incredibly important for the acceptance of uh, this technology as well. So, so there's a lot of thought that
0: goes into yes. this, it
1: sounds like. Yeah. And
0: I was thinking about the the smile on Tally. It's pretty friendly and approachable. And obviously the graphics and the representation to show a video doesn't look very advanced, but I'm sure it avoids uncanny valley as well, which can be yeah. so off-putting. And so. Ex-
1: exactly. Exactly.
0: You know, I, I think one of the things that's maybe less apparent to people like me that are outside is the evolution of business models. I think when people think about buying robots, it's like you spend a lot of money and then you expense it over a long period of time, but there's been obviously this evolution to robots as a service. Would love to hear your experience, sort of like the RAS model, how that works, and I think how that works from a customer perspective, but how that works internally to you. Like, Do you have to do anything different to support a RAS model versus sort of just selling the robots directly?
1: Yes. So business model-wise, we had always wanted to, you know, really offer sort of solution as a service, you know, shelf intelligence as a service. So what, you know, people, as you described in the robotics space, are really describing as, as sort of robotics as a service. So selfishly as a company, you know, businesses and investors love this model because you, you end up with this sort of long-term, almost like a structured annuity in your, in your business. Mm. You're, you're, you're not just getting sort of a lumpy revenue stream of hardware. You can actually get greater gross margins over time, predictability in revenue streams, clear paths to upsell. There's a lot of direct benefits to the company. When you look at the customer side, there are incredible benefits as well. So as as we discussed a moment ago, you know, most retailers, you know, outside of the Amazons of the world are not really sort of technologists at heart. Most don't necessarily support their cash registers or their gas pumps. So for them to deploy and scale this technology, they really need a partner that's going to help them with things like deployment, support and maintenance, you know, onboarding, sort of data integration, all of these pieces, and the beauty of the RAS model is you can bundle, you know, the majority of these components, you know, in there, and you end up really as a true kind of pure play product company with with mm. no professional services and and sort of high gross margins. So, and the retailers like it because it allows them to get started without making a big investment. They don't have to mm. go out and buy fifty or five hundred robots outright. They can say, "Hey, like, you know, I'd love to try your service and 10 of our stores or facilities for a year. And mm-hmm. that's vastly cheaper uh, when you look at sort of the total cost of ownership for them in operating in, in this type of a model. Got
0: it. So then as a customer on the operation side, smaller budget ask initially, less outlay, more stability, like more clarity on what you're getting and what it takes to support it, you know, that's going to be supported. So it does sort of overcome some of those objections of this is going to be super expensive and I don't know how I'm going to get this through procurement. This, this helps with that
1: effectively. And absolutely. And it also gives them the benefit of, quite frankly, having SLAs is if they are sort of owning and operating this technology, like, you know, they have to hold their own technology, you know, operations and, you know, service teams accountable Whether if it's us managing it, you know, we will sign up for, you know, hardware reliability or robot uptime, you know, the quality Mm. of the the timeliness of the data uh, or accuracy of the data, all of those pieces. So it becomes a really great win-win. The other piece that's really valuable in this type of business model is retailers often benefit or our customers benefit from us working with other customers, right? So as we learn more within Mm. other environments... We have a single web platform, right? We don't have a web platform for every different, you know, customer. We don't have a separate computer vision processing pipeline for, you know, every mm. different customer. So as we learn in other environments, those learnings sort of roll back and you get that sort of benefit of, of sort of the, the network effect sort of across customers and, yeah. and learning, which is so incredibly valuable. So, so that data, that experience of
0: the robots across different environments that, that comes back and you're able to update. So I guess your machine learning algorithms or anything on sort of the back end that gets updated. And is that, so some of that must mean that either you're doing over the air updates to the robots or there's some larger processing in the cloud or both. I'm just curious. How does that look and work?
1: Yeah so we have a hybrid processing model today so if we think about the architecture of the product the robot of course has some of its own compute capabilities that's doing things like you know mapping and autonomous navigation in these stores understanding where it is or localization obstacle sort of avoidance the navigational behaviors it's also doing the raw data acquisition so our solution mm-hmm. captures high quality 2D and 3D image data from the store shelves to process from a computer vision standpoint. We also have RFID antennas on the robot as well. So those retailers that may be leveraging RFID tags for high value products like consumer electronics or sporting goods, we're able to keep track of those as well. So there's a set of processes that happen on the robot. And then there's a lot of post-processing around the data in the cloud. And the cloud really kind of operates as, you know, our perpetual storage and the way we kind of mine and disseminate, you know, this, this data.
0: Fast. fascinating. And so the RFID, is that something you've had from the beginning or is that something you added on in later something, models?
1: That's something we added later and it was really, you know, coming from customer requests. Mm. We wanted to start initially in grocery style environments that sell, package goods, right? Cans, mm-hmm. bottles, bags, boxes of things. Most of those products, it's cost prohibitive to actually put an RFID tag on. You're not going to put an RFID tag on a single roll of toilet paper or a can of baked beans, but you would be willing to put an RFID tag on a $30 shirt or you know, an $80 consumer electronics device. So we started getting a lot of outreach from retailers in markets like clothing, consumer electronics, sporting goods, and it was very similar use cases as sort of the grocery style environments. Of we really need to know what products we have in our store, we need to know where they are,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and there were a lot of drivers there. You know, there's the the labor piece and and freeing up a lot of this new segment of retail I just described. They also do a lot of order online and pick up in store Hmm. or order online and actually your order will be serviced out of your stores. And as you begin Mm -hmm. to connect e-commerce to these environments, when you log into an online website and it says the products there and you click order, the last thing you want to hear is they come back later and say, sorry, we don't have it or your order's not going to be available for several weeks. It's a, it's a little bit of a different experience and expectation than going into a physical retail store. So it's really been about tightening that, you know, data and, and feedback loop.
0: Interesting. So, you know, I would naturally think that a retailer would be like, okay, I ordered 100 units, I've sold 80. So I know I have 20 left. And it sounds like actually having real time data on the floor, improves that inventory awareness as well. And then, that makes it the experience of ordering online and picking up the store, like which I did at Target today for a booster seat, better and faster.
1: Right. It, it it does, and I think it's really important to unpack what you just said in a little more detail. So the whole reason our company exists is because retailers can't necessarily depend on this is what we think we shipped to the store, and this is what we sold,
0: mm. and
1: it's because of everything that happens in between. So did the product actually get on the truck? Was the right product picked at the warehouse? Was it delivered to the right store? Was it lost, damaged, stolen, or misplaced when it arrived in that environment? Is it actually in-store, but it's not on shelf, but it's in the back room? Or you have multiple display locations, so maybe it's not in its primary aisle, but it's actually on a promotional display on the other side of the store, but people don't know to look there. So... We're really the only way to kind of close those types of gaps and get to mm. the, sort of the root cause of, of closing that gap between sort of supply chain intelligence and and point of sale or sales intelligence.
0: That, I mean, that, that is interesting. sort of like that display and where is it? No, no human retailer is going to sort of no associate will probably know all that information right? There's no way they can just keep up to date on it. You have that information and you fill in this blind spot that, yeah, I would not have thought of, was it damaged? Is it somewhere that just is not expected? And so you just have Tally go around and make sure it's sort of like everything is categorized and identified in different spots. It's pretty neat.
1: Absolutely. And it it continues to build, you know, the benefits are not just for The retailer, right? There's so many other folks that operate in this space, whether it's the largest CPG brands in the world, the Unilevers and Procter & Gamble's. They want to know if their products are properly stocked. Instacart or DoorDash wants to know what's on these store shelves so they can optimally Mm. route their shoppers to the right stores and have the least cost pick path. Like it's a missed opportunity. If you don't know a product's not on shelf until someone actually goes to try to pick it, right? You want to know that before. So that's why this data can be sort of so transformative, you know, really to this, the whole value chain across retail.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the experience of ordering something on DoorDash for groceries and be like, okay, we're out and we gave you something you didn't want at all. It's a poor experience, I guess. Thinking about this as we talk about, you know, both Amazon because they own Whole Foods and DoorDash because they had was it Chow Robotics? And they're doing their own robotics. Like, where do you sort of see this? Like, what do you think you understood about this space that is causing someone like Amazon or DoorDash to just miss it? Does that make sense as a question?
1: It it does. And to be honest, they haven't missed it. It's just okay. a problem that they. In their growth mindset or where they're focused today, they've historically swept under the rug. Mm, And I think what we're continuing to see is this is just such an exposing problem, right? On the e-com world, whether it's Instacart or DoorDash, we see it all the time. Customer submits an order with just 12 items, like Mm -hmm. 40 or 50% of them are substituted and 10% Mm -hmm. are product not found. And what we often find is the vast majority of all those situations are controllable through you know, our data. So it really becomes about, to, to unlock all of this value, you know, this technology really just needs to be more ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. And so when you talk about sort of organizations like those, we are well-known quantities. And mm-hmm. it's really about getting to greater scale in the environments that they're in. So they can take advantage of this data holistically. Interesting. And the same would be true, I would say, with the Googles of the world, right? If, you know, Google is all about organizing the world's information, you know, their largest dollars come from advertising. So mm-hmm. much of their work today is getting into hyper-local advertising and helping mm-hmm. people get there through wayfinding. It's a terrible experience to get an ad for a product that you want to go pick up in a local store to actually get there And you either not be able to find it um, or it it not be on shelf.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So how do you think about scaling in this situation? You know, I I don't know if it's cultural acceptance as an issue to scaling. I don't know if it's manufacturing as anything that's holding back scaling. I'm not saying that you have any, I have no insight into that. I'm just curious, like, what do you think about your path forward to the scale that you're talking about to sort of like real time knowledge of everything going on at a local level?
1: Yeah, so our go, go-to-market strategy has really been about individually partnering with these retailers. Now, of course, if we had a several billion dollar balance sheet, I think we would just finance putting this technology out in, in all of these stores, right? It would be a very different strategy. But as a startup that's, you know, building its way through, you know, extreme growth and, and getting, to, getting towards profitability, you know, we can't necessarily go into every store today and and we have to be a little more selective about the the partners we pursue. So that's really been the the strategy. You know, if you look at just the top 250 retailers across the US, you know, you're talking about a quarter million physical stores. Like there's a lot of stores out there and we can build a public scale company after re- after off of just really servicing a small fraction of them. Hmm. And that's what's so exciting about this business is we believe that there this is a 100 billion dollar data set when you look at the world's largest retailers and brands. And so that's really our go to market strategy for now is you know we partner with the retailers, we take this to scale within their environments, we work with them closely to fully optimize this data within all of their core business processes. So that's workforce Mm -hmm. management, restocking, tasking, accountability. That's supply chain or reordering. That's are they properly executing prices or displays, you know, at the store level in the right way. And as we start to get to scale there, we actually partner with the retailer to sell this data back into the market. So Hmm you know, the Unilevers and Proctors and Gambles and Pepsis of the world send secret shoppers into these stores or their own associates all oh. the time to look at how their product is represented on shelf. So that's a segment we're disrupting. Well, and, and folks like the Nielsens and IRIs of the world and many other companies, secret shopper sort of companies operate in, in that space also
0: and yeah, peeling back layers. I just kind of missed on that. And I think so as someone from the marketing world, like the Nielsen piece, like that's really interesting. Are you capturing video and like sharing? So it's like, this is what your display looks like. We know where it is in the store, and this is what it looks like, and you're sending it back. Is that,
1: so, so we are. We're also answering such a fundamental but important question for them. So when these brands look at their performance data in these stores every day, and their product doesn't sell, they wonder is my product not selling because nobody's buying it or is my Mm. product not selling because it's actually not on shelf. Mm. And we're the only folks on the planet that can actually answer that question.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Cause there's that sort of confounding variable, like what is going on and you don't necessarily have access to that data. imagine that you would send a secret shopper, you'd take it as like a sample and then you would try to extrapolate from that sample. And now you actually have, Set of information.
1: But what we have learned is every store is different. You know, we go into these retailers and we'll stand up stores that are, you know, a mile or two apart from each other and Mm. sort of similar regions, similar workforce pools, similar social economic status. But you have one store that has 15% of their products out of stock and you have one that has 4%. And when you start yeah. to dive into this data, you start to see, well, these stores are operated very differently. You mm-hmm. often have a store that's sort of very well managed compared to the others. But it's hard to know that if you're just looking at sales data, right? right. So we, we really kind of close that critical data gap there in a continuous way uh, versus someone going out once a month, once a quarter, once a year and taking a sample from one store, a small number of stores, we are, you know, fully instrumenting these stores perpetually.
0: Yeah. And I guess like you give more data points. So whoever is doing the regression modeling, media mix modeling on the CPG side is like, okay, I now have 10 extra data points I didn't even think about before, can model those and see what is relevant. And then just and then you also then sort of like have a scorecard capability, right? So you're like, this is a well run store. This is what this looks like. This is something that needs to improve. That's a marketer that's super fascinating. Um, yes yeah absolutely didn't think about it you know you're in Francisco switching gears a little bit but you're in san francisco you're building a robotics company there's a lot of talk about future of work being remote or hybrid how do you think about that for robotics because i imagine you have to build in person but i'm just curious i don't how does that look
1: yeah, so as a company, we definitely view ourselves as, as kind of a, a data and technology company, but is as you well understand, we're full stack and we build our own hardware. You know, we're manufacturing this at scale, not in-house, but with a global contract manufacturing partner. So we need physical presence, you know, in office. And what we have found that works very well for our team is really a hybrid based approach and a, a flexible model that, you know, varies. Across the teams. So our, you know, our sales and customer success teams are spending a lot of time in the field anyway. So, you know, often for us, most of those folks are remote unless they're representing sort of West Coast or Northern California. You know, on the software side, those folks that are furthest away from the ba- bare metal are often sort of remote, you know, cloud or web. Those mm-hmm. folks that are doing robot software or firmware, you know, come in, you know, a bit more frequently. When we look at our teams like Hardware engineering, electrical engineering, manufacturing, supply chain, you know, those teams are almost in our office, so really as much as they need. And, you know, this strategy is really sort of work, you know, for us. And, you know, I still find myself and I really enjoy it, you know, coming in a number of days a week and still getting that face time with everyone. And Mm -hmm. then those software folks that are, let's say, going to take more of a remote role perpetually you know we do our best to kind of encourage regular sort of in-person meetings whether that's all hands or get the whole team out you know sort of quarterly Mm -hmm. that's that's really been the strategy
0: yeah that that makes sense so different parts of the business like if you need to be close you're close if you can be remote you're sort of more remote and it's really whatever works and makes sense for for you yeah that makes sense What is one of the hardest problems that you're trying to solve right now?
1: It's a good, it's a good, good question. You know, as a startup, we're solving sort of hard problems all the time. I would say, fortunately for us, we've sort of crossed the chasm as it relates to anything on the product side. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, we can operate. We have robots in more than four countries. You know, we've traversed, you know, hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of miles in these stores. You know, I think for us, it it starts to switch to more sort of commercial and growth. We have so many opportunities in front of us with global retailer interest from all across the world, you know, partner interest from these folks throughout the value chain, you know, whether they're brands retail mm-hmm. services companies, people doing online grocery entities, I think as a startup one of the hardest problems is, is really the qualification process of where do you put your bets because yeah. we can unlock so much value in all of these different areas and a lot of it comes down to us just being really rigorous on how we assess each of these opportunities and really the cultural fit of the partner. Mm. You know, we want folks that are going to sort of move quickly and scale. But I would say most of the thought and scrutiny today goes there. Mm. Uh, and then we continue to think about, you know, every company, you know, startup needs, you know, sort of cash and, and sort of investment, you know, really looking and continuing to look at, you know, unique funding models for the business. So we've been fortunate is we've raised, you know, more than 30, 30 million from, you know, top tier venture capital We've also heavily leveraged, you know, banks with more sort of loan or sort of revolving facilities. So one of the beauties of sort of RAS or, you know, this is something a lot of SaaS companies do is they're able to sort of borrow against their contracts. Mm -hmm. So continuing to find the right capital mix and right capital partners for the business as we continue to scale, you know, both domestically and abroad. So personally, that's where much of my thinking, you know, in, in the business is today.
0: Got it. So right set of customers to partner with you, also the right sort of finance structure to help grow and propel. That's interesting. So I don't know that you use Pipe. Pipe is something that people use to sort of like trade against their forward revenues on SaaS. Is that something that you would look at or use more traditional banks on that?
1: Yeah. So we're using more, I would say more of your venture style banks. Yes. But there's becoming a much more established world. If we look at the rapid growth of SaaS in the last decade, there are a lot of lending facilities out there that, whether it's true software as a service or data as a service or whatever it is as a service, they sort of fall in love with the annuity structure of these businesses and have the ability mm-hmm. to sort of finance or underwrite against. Them. So it's a really a great tool for startups that are sort of post product market fits. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've. De- Develop sort of this rinse and repeat sales process to really get some great working and revolving capital, with also not being sort of highly dilutive and and really saving that equity capital for really investing in you know your people and strategic areas sort of across the business.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting insight. I know not all robotics customers are sort of bringing in revenue or cash. I'm curious, did you build Simbi and like we're going to build it and then go out and sell it, or did you already have customer interest in a way that a traditional B2B SaaS might go out and sell and then build? How did you approach that in the very
1: early days? In the early, early days, and and you mentioned this a little earlier, EJ, but we didn't have necessarily a ton of deep relationships with with big retailers because we're still operating in stealth mode. So we started developing a few organic one-on-one relationships, a lot for sort of requirement gathering and really starting to frame the product from a product requirements and market requirements perspective. That was super helpful. And I think we found retailers that were willing to invest in us. We were really willing to invest in them and sort of mutually learn. Once we got enough market intelligence, we really went heads down and built the first generation of the product. Uh, And we came back and announced the product publicly to the market in late 2015, early 2016. And at that point, you know, we didn't have any revenue yet in the business. But the moment we announced it, we had more than 500 global retailers reach out to us over the next 7 to 10 days. So we knew we found real pain. Yeah, And, you know, we immediately began to shift to, you know, how do we best sort of capitalize and continue to scale the business and round the corners on the product. That mm-hmm. was sort of really, you know, the approach there. But I would say all too often, you know, a lot of roboticists become really enamored with the technology mm-hmm. and lose sight of some of the market or sort of product requirements. So we, we made certain we were really buttoned up there mm-hmm. before we, we made a big, big splash.
0: Yeah, seems like that worked really well. So that was a, a clearly smart approach on that. Sort of final question, what's the hypothesis you start had starting Simbe Robotics that you've either changed your mind on or sort of like gotten further conviction on
1: Yeah, the original hypothesis, you know, was really about leveraging, you know, robotics and you know computer vision to to automate traditional industries and where we where we immediately landed was sort of retail we had looked at spaces like you know agriculture manufacturing hospitality but just the size of the data prize in retail you mm-hmm. know the north market north american grocery market alone is 1 trillion you know the global retail market is you know nearly a 30 trillion dollar market so i would say much of that has remained the same i think for us In the early vision, we had interest in bringing other products to market that would sort of convey or move product or help and sort of pick and place product. I think those are still potentially on the long-term horizon, but there's been this unrelenting sort of focus on the data side because this data is so valuable to all the stakeholders we talked about. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's maybe been a little bit of the shift of just really sort of doubling down and, and the core focus there.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I think that played well. I think that makes sense. And I'm assuming, you know, thinking about the ag side, you get to design a robot for a, a less harsh space in some sense. It doesn't have to be able to like climb over dirt or anything like that. It's a better environment to operate in as well. And you don't have to worry about picking up things too. Like it sounds like you guys also narrowed down very clearly on where the tech would be strong and where the data need would be fulfilled.
1: You're absolutely right. And If you look at a retail store, you know, fixed four walls that aren't necessarily moving very often. They're, you know, disability compliant environments. So they have ramps, you know, no big transitions, trip has good, strong Wi-Fi connectivity. So it's actually a really great environment for, you know, a mobile robotics platform to, to operate. And, you know, launching in physical retail stores has allowed us to get involved into, you know, club stores and warehouses and other environments as well. So really solving you know the the same problem yeah fantastic
0: well brad thanks for joining today i appreciate all those insights it was great to learn from you thanks for coming on
1: yeah absolutely such a pleasure ej thank you so much